You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. The 2020s have been a story of floods, fires and natural disasters. And as the climate crisis worsens, the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events will only increase. So what does a victim of a natural disaster look like? How prepared are communities to face future disasters? And what are some of the solutions being put on the table? I'm Jacob Gamble, broadcasting from Wurundjeri country in Nam, Melbourne. Today on Earth Matters, how to recover from a once-in-a-lifetime natural disaster and prepare for the next one. Cap and I did lose our home to the Black Summer fires on that terrible New Year's Eve in 2019. Jack Egan is a high school teacher and a climate activist from Batemans Bay in New South Wales. The fire on the day was of a catastrophic nature, as as we know, and which was a lot more than I had expected, a lot more severe. My greatest worry and the worry of my partner was whether each of us was okay. My partner had evacuated to the beach, which is only a few hundred metres from our house, and I'd stayed home and we both did not know if the other had actually survived this uh, firestorm. However, we both did unscathed um, and with that experience and, and the possibilities is in the material house was not of great consequence on the day. However, it soon was of consequence because the whole re re-equipping yourself for life and rebuilding is is quite a, a lengthy process. However, we were one of the lucky ones. Climate change has shifted the odds against the otherwise low risk and low low cost life good life people could have in the regions and you know on on quiet bush blocks where they you know often would build their own places so that's not our path but um people further south from us were oh, of that sort of socio-economic group uh, where that was a, a good option for them, though it would be very difficult for them to have afforded insurance in some cases, so they would have come out of this fire experience a lot worse off. And how long uh, did the rebuild take? Uh, it took uh, three years. Jack's experience of the Black Summer bushfires was heard around the world when a photo of him in front of his burnt house went viral on the internet. Thought back to the 70s when I'd been a kind of schoolboy activist and back then car stickers had been a big thing, posters and car stickers, physical ones. And I thought, well, what do I have that could serve that purpose? And I had a a Toyota Land Cruiser at the time, and it had a pretty long roof with roof racks. And so I put a long sign on it. It was about two metre long sign attached to the roof, and it said, climate action now or question mark. And 
that that car and sign survived the fire. And the day after the fire, um, I asked my partner to take a photo of me with our burnt-out house behind me and a car with the roof sign visible as a as a kind of statement about how the question mark had been filled in. If we don't take climate action now, uh, this sort of thing will happen and it happened increasingly often, as we have seen. Um, and look, that photograph went viral around the world and I got interviewed by a lot of people and I realised, well, I have a voice and people are really interested in this topic, even though it's quite mm, a difficult topic. We're a canary in a coal mine here. We've suffered the early consequences of climate change. We have to play our part as the canary that broadcasts to the world, watch out, it's coming for you and it's coming fast. What do you think are some of the main challenges faced by rural communities in dealing with this kind of thing? Um, yeah, the main challenges really intersect with people's, the depth of people's pockets. The more well-off you are, the greater your ability to protect yourself physically from the um, ravages of climate-driven events or to move or to insure against them. As your pocket is... For, for people whose pockets are less deep, um, they're... Well, they're commensurately more affected. Imagine Pacific Islanders, for example, or uh, Aboriginal people in remote Australia. Well, take the take the latter group that they're having to endure hotter summer temperatures, often without air conditioning in their homes. This is the case around Tennant Creek, for example, and. Yeah, they well, they've got nowhere to go <laughs> that they can afford to get to and set up a new life. Mm. Rural communities will be very much affected by the, well, the increased variability of weather conditions under which they're trying to farm, I'm suspecting, um, as rainfall gets sort of more unpredictable and obviously damaging in extreme <laughs> amounts. daughter and I lost everything in the floods. Kate Coxall is a single mum from the Northern Rivers in New South Wales. She's worn many different hats, including being a journalist, working in property maintenance, and has faced head-on the devastation of natural disasters, losing her home in the 2022 floods that battered southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales. We um, self-evacuated to a neighbour's, which was lucky because the water 
which had never come um, up past the floor deck, uh, came right to the ceiling and we wouldn't have had any way of being able to manage that given how fast flying it was and there was no way to get up on the roof. But because we just saw something that looked like an inland tsunami already on the Saturday, we decided to to head for higher ground, thank goodness, and we did. And, and then um, we were stuck there for days until the helicopters came to get us out. We'd been flooded in for five days and I had, you know, like it was 100 acres, it's quite rural so I'd, you know, been trying to rescue all these animals and dealing with people with, you know, head wounds that were trying to rescue themselves in tinnies. It was just absolute chaos. It was really, really scary. And, you know, we we had a number of experiences where we thought people might have died and, you know, like neighbours who were trapped on the roof for three days and just all sorts of things, you know, having to weighed in to rescue my daughter's animals um, was just awful. And, you know, and then the experience of in the end finding that that we had lost them regardless of all the effort that I had had made, unfortunately, to try and, and save them um, was just really heartbreaking. And then, you know, for weeks afterwards, we as community members, the neighbour who had been trapped on the roof for three days and us, myself, um, not my daughter, but just myself, we went out on boats and, you know, took supplies and, and rescued people in our own community because there just wasn't anybody else who was willing to go out there and, and do that in that those conditions. And that was really confronting for so many of us because so many of us think that, you know, if it gets that bad, someone will come for you, but it's not always the case. The floods were one of the most devastating recorded in Australian history. According to the National Emergency Management Agency, parts of Queensland and New South Wales had each received more than a year's worth of rainfall by the end of the first week in March. Despite the scale of this disaster, Kate says there was no formal procedures and very little resources available to manage the immediate response, with most of the work being led by volunteers in the community. What kinds of preparation or structures were in place before these huge flooding events? None. So the the reality of that community, uh, the Bungawalb and Woodburn area, is that there was an SES, but the SES went under. Um, you know, there were just not enough members, even if there had been enough members, it going under was obviously problematic in itself, but also there just weren't enough boats, weren't enough supplies. Day 19, I will never forget, we were all completely exhausted, absolutely drenched because it was still just pouring. Um, and I had sent a couple of friends, um, as coordinators that day in the hopes that I could start to take some rest and, you know, just look after kind of our recovery a little bit. And so I turned up in the afternoon only to realise that they just, there were just those blind spots that you forget that people don't regularly know unless they've maybe been trained in 
emergency response. So things like, you know, making sure you've got everybody's names and numbers and, you know, next of kin details and just kind of being being aware of, you know, who's out on what craft and and making sure that they're all coming back and they're all going to be safe, that they've got extra petrol and stuff. So we actually, so we had this freak hailstorm. We had guys out on a jet ski that we didn't know where they were, a boat that went to look for them that ran out of petrol, another boat that went to look for that boat, all in these really dangerous, incredibly fast-flowing floodwaters with, you know, livestock and trees and water tanks and all sorts of horrendous things flowing past and underneath submerged very quickly. So the stress levels were pretty high, but as our crews came back, we breathed a sigh of relief for all of two minutes before hearing that there was a family who had been sleeping under tarps in bathtubs in their paddock and needed rescue. And I'll never forget the feeling in my heart when I heard that, just looking around, knowing we were we were heading into nightfall again and that they were going to have yet another night. So the next day we were up bright and early and that was my mission was to get them rescued. Uh, but by now we were trying to hand over to, you know, the emergency services, the army, anyone that we could to take over, obviously, like we needed to to be able to step back. Um, and we couldn't. It just kept getting handballed back to us, you know, another three days. What was it, 1920? Yeah, another three days until um, the army were able to get in and, you know, fire and rescue and things were able to take over. So we did end up performing that rescue in the end, the community. Um, but it just shows you how extreme things had gotten uh, and how scary things were at that point to to have had almost a month of this mayhem and chaos. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. This episode is all about resilience to natural disasters. We've been listening to Kate Coxell speak about her experiences in the 2022 Northern Rivers floods. One key part of disaster resilience is ensuring that all members of the community know how to prepare, respond and recover from a natural disaster. One cohort that are being increasingly recognised as important in this process is young people. If you upskill or or treat a young person in this space with credibility and look at their skills, you automatically move them from a vulnerability narrative into a capability narrative. Associate Professor Fiona MacDonald is a researcher at Victoria University and a sociologist. Her latest research has been capturing the experiences of young people in disaster recovery and preparedness across northeast and northern Victoria. I began by asking Fiona how young people saw their roles in disaster management. I guess the really simple word would be they feel overlooked. Um, so they feel like they're not involved in that um, in their communities around disasters, and that's from before a disaster happens through to to uh, the aftermath and recovery. Um, and I guess it's a funny thing to say because, I mean, obviously we don't know where a disaster is going to happen before it does. Um, I think what we do know, unfortunately, is that they are going to happen. And so what we're hearing from young people is that decisions are being made for them 
um, at a local, state and national level that they're not involved in or they're not consulted about. So there's a lot of frustration, I guess, um, from young people and they want to be more involved. Um, and I think it's important to say that's not about saying let's send a young person out into the path of a flood or a bushfire and, and expect them to cope. That's absolutely not what we're talking about. But it's about um, building skills and capabilities before a disaster happens. And as I said, again, you don't know where it's going to happen, but by building the skills and capabilities of young people in preparation for a disaster, you're also building community connection and resilience and, and engagement. So it's a positive thing for young people anyway to be actively involved. Um, what else are they telling us? They don't like the fact that everyone comes from elsewhere to fix their community and they're not involved in that process. Um, they're frustrated that in a, at a family level they often have lots of responsibility, but when it comes to helping out in their community, that's generally not, about, not possible. What do you see as the role of the young people in the disaster resilience, migration and recovery? Their role is the same as any of our roles, really. Cherry Byrne is a youth peer worker from Koryong, a small town of just under 1,500 people in northern Victoria. She runs programs with young people from the local area and witnessed the aftermath of the Black Summer bushfires in 2019 and 2020. I think there's also that, that separation in people's mind where what do youth do during the bushfires? But this, the same question could be applied to adults. What are they doing during the bushfires? So a, a lot of our youth, they um, they ended up staying on the farms and fighting the fires and they acquired those hands-on skills without us having to interfere um, or upskill them. That disaster was what upskilled them in some kind of way and made them a little bit more resilient. So I don't think it needs to be any different. I think that the only different, the gap that was there was the, the aftermath of the recovery where all these support and services were being off, offered. None of them were being offered to that demographic, so 12 to 25. Or it, well, often it was over 18. Um, and they could get the fence rebuilt, they could get the free mental health support, but that just didn't apply to our youth. Nobody talked to them, nobody, you know, really done anything beneficial for them, nobody talked to them face-to-face -face and said, what do you need, how can we help? But rather people from Melbourne flooded down and um, we had quite a few come through the youth space trying to talk to the youth um, and it turned out that, you know, they were talking about, oh, well, what we're going to do is we're going to come down and we're going to offer, you know, we have money for these disasters that you have just gone through. Um, but we found that everybody that kept coming in and talking to our youth were not wanting to know what the youth wanted. They had their idea and they were trying to put that on, on the young people. It's children's human right to be involved in things that matter. So when you talk about Earth Matters as a show, you know, there's nothing probably more significant for, for young people in their lives of the, the fear of something that might happen that, that's unknown or that is uncertain to how that plays out. Um, 
So, you know, it's children's right, human right to be involved in decision-making that's impacting their lives as well. So, you know, there's some pretty significant kind of reasons. I mean, we know that human rights is not always followed for children in, in our country, um, but in you know, it certainly sits within this and that's an opportunity. I mean, the other thing about that is that if you upskill young people and you use their skills and capabilities in communities, communities become more resilient. They become stronger. They've got more of their um, members actually actively involved in trying to do things. And each member's role would be different, but at least they're involved. Um, so, you know, there's significant opportunities from a community perspective to actually engage with young people. But, you know, that trust and respect takes time. And what we saw with, we've seen with Future Proof is that those young people who are embedded in the um, local government organisations, they've, they've been there for 12 or 18 months and are now gaining the respect of their organisation. So it takes time. And, um, and sometimes we don't have the time. We, through there, found out that there was a massive burnout. Our youth were just, everything was being thrown at them and all of a sudden the important things were just blended in with everything else. Um, so we've really had to re-identify how we can step in and really make a difference for them. And that's, you know, for, for a lot of them, it is just social inclusion and engagement and being a part of community and just having somewhere they can belong. Um, that's that's what I believe is going to build resilience and recovery and upskilling. By mid-January, an estimated 10 million hectares have been incinerated, an area larger than the 2019 California fires and Amazon fires combined. Dozens of people have lost their lives, thousands of homes have been destroyed, and estimates suggest that more than a billion animals have been killed. The loss of social connection is really one theme that's been coming out of these communities so strongly. Carla Hall is a disaster-specialised youth worker based in East Gippsland, Victoria. The anxiety, the, the trauma of these events is long-lasting, yet the access to services to address these issues is, is extremely limited. Wait lists for mental health services in rural and regional communities, particularly those that specialise in, in young people and what they need, is just incredibly long. There is short-term funding to address these issues. There's um, sometimes just no supports at all. Um, you've got your, your online um, kind of aids that they can access, but really what they're saying is they do want to come together in person. They want to see a friendly face. They want to connect with their peers. Carla currently manages a project called Future Proof that brings together over 10 organisations across regional Victoria to upskill young people in disaster management and recovery. Future Proof is a collective impact project um, that was funded under the Black Summer Grants um, in response to the 2019-2020 Black Summer bushfires. Uh, it brings together a range of local partners. So we have um, local councils, um, NGOs and Aboriginal controlled organisations, as well as local learning and employment networks and Victoria University. We've seen um, programs such as kind of peer-led education about what to pack in your go bag, uh, arts and cultural events, 
podcasts, emergency expos. We've seen um, young people in these youth advisory groups paid for their time. So they're actually in, not having to take time away from part-time jobs. Um, we've seen the development of leadership uh, opportunities, camps. Um, we've seen in, across our Aboriginal controlled organisations, greater cultural connection, um, training in land management, cultural burning, um, and through the qualification pathways, we the original objective was around 150 young people trained across these communities. At the moment, um, we have around over 400 young people trained up in emergency management and community um, connections. What's been uh, the broader community's response to these kind of projects and the upskilling? Oh, I think there's when you look at the kind of the objective numbers of 150 and then completely over like <laughs> exceeding that by over 400 and looking to grow even further, the community has really embraced this program. We've seen um, organizations like um, DECA uh, take on uh, young trainees, in school traineeships that have led to careers. We've seen local government embrace young peer workers. Um, into their emergency management planning. We've seen um, community recovery committees embracing more young people and giving them a seat at that decision-making table. We've seen um, a growth in the arts and cultural space and really having greater involvement of young people um, in, in the design and delivery of these events. Uh, we've seen in some communities growth in volunteer programs greater uptake in um, kind of the emergency services volunteering. We've had uh, an incredible response from the emergency management sector. It's weird talking about what excites you in disaster, but I do want to ask, like, what excites you about this? I saw a huge cohort in community completely unprepared for the events that unfolded. And knowing that knowledge, uh, agency, resilience can will be increased through programs like this is going to leave community better able to, to respond, um, to recover, to be involved. And I think not avoiding that level of devastation, even a small part and keeping people safer and happier just really drives that excitement. But also this is a really, really exciting space to be in. Young people have often been seen as victims of disaster, not active agents of change. So it's a huge shift um, in, in thinking in this space. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Thank you so much to our guests, Jack Egan, Kate Coxell, Fiona McDonald, Carla Hall, and Cherry Byrne, for sharing their experiences and expertise. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR in Fitzroy, Nam. I'm Jacob Gamble. We'll be back next week 